Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. It's time for Skeptical Thoughts now and introducing our skeptic tonight, Mark Honeychurch. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. And you? I'm well, but it sounds like that you've had some divine divine intervention into the soul today. A little bit of a visit to your local church services. Yeah, absolutely. I've been on a field trip today. Um, had really good fun. I was contacted a little while ago um, by a visiting academic over from Iran called Hamid. And he's over at the moment working on his PhD. And being from Iran and um, and being from a Muslim background, he'd never experienced any kind of Christian service. And he was really interested in finding out what happens, what church is like. So wow. he contacted me and he asked me if um, I'd take him along. And I thought, well, rather than just taking him along to one service, maybe I could show him a couple of extremes of what church is like in New Zealand. Mm. Um, So I I picked a a couple of um, nice examples of where to go in Wellington. The first one was the Cathedral of St. Paul. So this is Anglican. It's high church. um, It's a very large building in the center of Wellington. And then the second one I picked was a Rise Church, which is a modern church. It's evangelical. They just built themselves a new building out in the hut, I think at a cost of eight and a half million dollars. Oh, the tithers. They'll be the tithers, won't they? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. They're they're big on tithing and getting their congregation to to Mm. hand over as much money as possible. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we we had a really good time starting at 10 o'clock in the morning going to these two services. And uh, I put together a little audio clip trying to just um, give a feel of what those two services were like. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Here we go. Interesting little uh, difference in the services. One quite a traditional service, and then sounded like a bit of a preacher there at that second one. Yeah, absolutely. So with the music, obviously the the first one is standard. You've got an organ playing. You've got people singing from a hymn book. The second one was, um, I think, four guitars, one drummer, maybe five or six singers up on stage. Very vibrant, lots of lights, a smoke machine even. Um, so it's, it's very much like a rock concert. And then, as you say, with, with the sermon, there was something of a juxtaposition there. So the first one was, uh, there was an attempt there to make it relevant. The the sermon was about cricket, Um but I'm not sure how much it engaged the audience. The second one, he was very dynamic, very engaging, told his personal story, his testimony about how he'd come to God many years ago. Um, But one thing that that happens with Arise, because I I go to Arise occasionally, is a lot of the subtext, a lot of what's being talked about is the idea that you need to give in order to receive. It's called prosperity gospel. The idea that the more you sow, the more money that you give to the church, the more that God will give back to you in time. 
Mm. And, and what was Ham, uh, Hamid? I'm saying that correctly. What was Hamid's impression of the two services? How, how did he, what was his reaction? So he, he had a lot of questions, which was great. In the Anglican service, he was asking about whether the things that were being said were from the Bible. And for a lot of it, it's liturgy that was written hundreds of years later. So I was trying to explain to him, you know, this, this is a Bible reading, but this isn't from the Bible. Um, but he definitely noticed the differences. When, when it came to those two, he, with the first one, he thought it was boring, but it was more what he was expecting. We had the stained glass windows. We had kind of the traditional singing. And that a lot of that was what he was expecting to see. And then the second one, he said, in a way he felt more comfortable with. It was modern. It was welcoming. People were friendly as we walked through the door. Um, it felt more natural. The speaker was, was much more fun to listen to. But at the same time, he came away from it with an impression that it was just hollow. He said that there was, he didn't feel like there was any theology to it, that there was no substance behind just looking like something that's fun to be at. Um, and I, I thought for someone who'd never really seen a church service before, he, he seemed to cut through a lot of what he was seeing and, and get to the core of what was going on. You know what's really interesting about that the second sort of evangelical style of church is when you go to the congregation and or you, you listen to them all sort of engaging and agreeing and mm, mm, yes, 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 and actually answering the preacher back, whereas at the traditional churches, they sit there and they listen. You can hear a pin drop during the sermon. Everyone's sitting there silently listening. But there's much a higher level of engagement between the audience and the, the priest or the uh, the minister or whatever you'd like to call them in those modern churches, isn't there? And and they seem to, to, to be... I guess a higher energy between uh, in the audience, whereas you know the the Anglican service is probably a little, little bit older crowd too. I would have thought. Yeah, certainly they both feel like communities, but I, I think a rise in other evangelical churches they make you feel like as soon as you walk through the door, you're part of that community. They they put a lot of effort into making sure that they have people standing there at the doors who are friendly and welcoming with big smiles. Um, they try and make it so that you're comfortable. I mean, going through the Anglican service, it was interesting. Both Hamid and I were jumping between the songbook, um, the liturgy book, and the newsletter, and there were bits of text in all of them that we had to sing and that we had to speak, whereas at Arise, it was all up on a single screen. You know, they're thinking about making it comfortable for people. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how they, they figured out how to do it properly, it's just unfortunate that it seems to be that that subtext, that message that's underneath it all is give us money, give us lots of money seems to be mm, what, what's money. underneath it. And it, it's so unfortunate, especially, you know, because a lot of younger people, and this is something else Hamid noticed, is that at the Anglican service, people were mainly older. They seemed to be quite wealthy. Um, and then at the Arai service, they, they were young. And I, I think for young people, especially without children, they they are more likely to give away a lot more as a percentage of their salary. Mm, interesting take. Interesting take on your church visits this morning, and it's just uh, amazing that that Hamid can go and do that. Uh, that's the beauty of New Zealand. We accept all different types of religion, uh, as sceptical or not as we may be, but in those countries, can they not practice Christianity? Is it not allowed in some of those countries? 
So I've, I've spent a couple of months in Iran and did um, bump into some Christians once, but um, they asked uh, to pray with um, with me and they were they were pretty quiet about it. So I'm not sure just how illegal it is, but I, I think it's not the kind of thing that Christians do out in the open in Iran very much. So especially I think at the evangelical end, I'd imagine oh, no. that the state doesn't look very kindly upon it. No. Uh, let's move on to the Indian scammers uh, that you have managed to get a little recording of talk to us about this one yeah so this is nice i um like anybody in new zealand i'm sure i get phone calls occasionally from either windows by which people mean microsoft Mm. or spark um these are people with indian accents phoning up saying hi i'm from spark um just wanted to let you know there's a problem with your computer I'd, i'd like to be able to show you what's going on and they they walk you through clicking a few things on your machine um, historically, it's been an event log. They get you to bring up an event log on your computer. There are errors and warnings, and they say, this is a virus. This time, it was different. So when the guy phoned me the other day, he said that my private IP address had been made public, and this meant that my internet connection was compromised and that everybody would have access to my internet connection. Um, but it's a scam. The, these things are always scams. I'm not even a Spark customer. Uh, so when somebody phones me up saying they're from Spark and they're trying to help you with my internet connection, I'm pretty sure straight away that this is not going to be legitimate. Um, and I, I work in IT, so I know when I hear nonsense. You know, I, I recognize it straight away. Um, and what they're trying to do with these things is they're trying to get control of your PC. So once, they, once they've sucked you in, once they've got you thinking that you have a problem that needs fixing, they then say, well, we can fix it. You need to download this software and run it. And this software will will help you. And what the software actually does is it lets them connect in remotely and take over your PC. Obviously, that's a bad thing. You don't want these people connecting to your PC because they can install all sorts of malicious software. Uh, it's not something that's good. And I think quite often once they've done that, suddenly they're asking for your credit card. They say they'll clean up the issue, which is an issue that they've caused um, for a few hundred dollars. For a one-off charge, they'll fix it for you. So, um, Mm. yeah, what I try to do is basically keep them talking for as long as possible. (laughs) This time I managed half an hour. and I About 10 minutes in. Yeah, I I try. I really try to keep them going, and I really enjoy it. But this time, 10 minutes (laughs) and I remember to start recording. And I think we've got that audio, as you say, of me talking with this Indian man. Uh, sure, this is uh, Jason Roy. I'm a senior engineer from Spark. So how are you today? Uh, I'm I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you for that. Well, uh, could you tell me what exactly do you have on a screen? Do you see a so my PC only so my PC? Oh, I've just got a pop up that says up, updates available. Is that you? Is that the virus? Is that is that my, the fact that my network is shared? having a good time with me, sir. I know you're having a good time with me. This is not a joke. I'm sorry? What did you see tell me at first? Um, you told me to click on the link for Manage Engine Remote Control, so I've clicked on that. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't say just click on that. Just go one step back. All right, I'll go back. <laughs> you you sound very convincing. You're, Thank I, you. I actually think you're the scammer. You're the scammer <laughs> in that one. You're scamming him completely. That uh, isn't that funny? The how you hear him get a bit agitated with you. 
How there's that, yeah. lack, that, that lack of professionalism there. He, he starts to get pissed off that you're not doing or, or it's taking him longer. And, and that's obviously uh, must be ringing alarm bells. You won't get professionals ringing up and, and, and losing it a bit, little bit like that. Yeah, I, I, I think they're always aware that what they're doing is trying to trick people. And they are aware that some people like me will waste their time. And in the middle of that, I think he says, are you joking with me? And I get that quite often where they accuse me of just playing with them, which I'm doing. But every time I feigned ignorance, I never show my hand at that point. I, I just say, sorry, I don't understand what you're talking about. And they tend to drop it and just keep going. And with that guy, um, I managed to keep him going for another five or ten minutes after he thought that he'd caught me playing with him. But the reason I do this is serious. It's not just for fun, although I do enjoy it. But as far as I'm concerned, the longer I can hold these people on the phone, the longer I can waste their time, the less time they have to be ripping other people off. Mm. And, and so to be working on this, to be keeping, keeping them going for as long as possible is going to be helping other people in New Zealand not to get scammed by these same people. Absolutely. Skeptical thoughts. We will continue after the break here on the Weekend Variety Wireless. <laughs> You're tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. We continue our sceptical chat with Mark Honeychurch. Mark, 1080 Poison. This is a topic that I never quite know what to believe because there is so much information out there. But the protesters are now getting very, very loud and making a bit of a song and dance just so they can get their point across. And this saw, this week we saw the hikoi of a poisoned nation uh, at uh, onto the grounds of Parliament where there was some conjecture about just how some of those animals died. <laughs> yeah, there was. So so there was, a, there was a march on Parliament. There were other marches all around the country. It seems to be something of a coordinated action to protest against the use of um, 1080 poison. Uh, it, it's something that rural people, a lot of rural people for many years have not been happy with. They're worried that what the government's saying about 1080 is not true and that 1080 is causing a lot of problems for them. Um, and as you say, there were some... There were some dead birds thrown around at Parliament and there were questions about whether the birds had been killed just for this protest, which, as far as I understand, was not the case. Um, the birds and other animals were a mixture of those poisoned by 1080 and some, I think for the birds mainly, it, it, they were roadkill rather than being 1080 victims. Mm, that's, that's an interesting way to make, make your point. Uh, now, we, which way do we go here? I've got no idea, I'll be honest with you. It's not an issue that I've, I've looked into in any great detail, but you've got the government on one side and you've got the activists on the other. Is it the, I guess, well, let me change that. It's the scientists versus the activists, isn't it? Is that the two sides? Um, certainly, I mean, the, the science is, is one side, but... As a sceptic, of course, um, the science is the side that I would tend to fall on, unless there's a good reason not to trust the science, unless we can see that the science is corrupt, that they they have a bad reason um, to be making things up, to be lying. It, by default, science tries not 
to be biased, try, tries not to be political. It, it tries to just find the truth. Mm. And um, I, I thought this evening we could go through a few of the arguments I've heard about 1080 and, and just quickly go through seeing if we can um, we can talk about um, how to debunk these arguments, what, what the responses are to them. And uh, the few that I just pulled out of my head, things that I hear quite often about 1080 are ideas. Firstly, that it's poisonous not just to mammals but to other wildlife as well. Uh, secondly, it's so poisonous that no other country uses it. Uh, another argument is that it gets into the water supply and causes problems there. Then the idea that it doesn't break down over time, that it hangs around for a long time. And finally, that it bioaccumulates in animals so that as animals ingest it, they will get eaten by other animals. And as it works its way up the food tray chain, it tends to get more concentrated. So... The, these are some of the arguments that you'll hear about 1080, just purely without even going into these. The idea that the government hasn't thought of these things, the idea that the government and scientists are so inept that they haven't sat down and looked into this is, is laughable, to be quite honest. Of mm. course, people have looked into it. You know, scientists do studies. That's what they do. And they've done studies in this country with 1080 mm. just to check out these kinds of questions because they don't want to be poisoning people. They don't want to be poisoning animals that they shouldn't be poisoning. Mm. And so what, um, what are some of the answers that, or considerations to, to come back at, at some of these concerns or arguments? Yeah. So the first, the first um, point that it's poisonous not just to mammals but to other wildlife as well is that it is at times it can kill birds, but there are ways that the poison is put down these days, like colouring it green, that tries to make sure that birds are much less likely to eat it. And so scientists are trying to figure out more ways to minimise that. Um, and it's always been the case that the damage to birds, the number of birds killed, is a lot less than the predators and in the long term even if a few birds are killed the killing off of the predators is going to be much better for our native wildlife mm -hmm. so that's the first point the second point that it's so poisonous other countries don't use it this one's a simple one other countries don't use it because they have native mammals that they don't want to kill the only native mammals we have in this country are two species of bat um, so it's a very small risk there. So because we're not concerned about killing native mammals and because 1080 is so good at killing mammals, it makes sense to use it in this country, but not for a lot of other countries. And it has had limited use in other countries where they consider that there's not a huge risk of killing native mammals or areas where there aren't native mammals that they want to protect. So one, it's not true. And to the extent that it is true, it's because we have quite a different um, different situation here in New Zealand. The point, the, the point, next... yeah, the water supply one is the one that I think I would probably take most seriously. What's the evidence there that it gets into our water supply? Yep, so this is one scientists have looked into. They've done all sorts of tests. They, When they do drops, they regularly test the water. Um, they've tried feeding 1080 to eels to see how that um, affects them and then affects um, animals further down. And they've not found any issues with that. It, it, water very quickly dilutes 1080, so it's not really a problem. And I think we've got an audio clip of um, Dr. Mike Joy talking about this. And what, all of the studies are so clear that it just breaks down so quickly once it hits water that, that it's not an issue. It's a non-issue for, for fresh water. It's like climate change deniers. It doesn't matter how many facts you put in front of them, if they've decided that something's good or bad, then it almost seems to make them more 
you know, they dig their toes in even more if you the more facts you give them. So I kind of, I guess like lots of people, I, I just avoid the subject because I realize that I'm not going to get anywhere. I just try to gently, you know, um, make it clear that the science is clear that there isn't a problem. You know, I mean, I, I hate the idea of using toxins as much as anybody else does, but, you know, the problem, you know, some problems take serious, you have to take a serious, you know, hammer to some problems, and, and that's, that's the reality. Yeah, he's a respected scientist, Mike Joy, isn't he? And, and that's, uh, that's a compelling piece of audio there for support of 1080. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's nice when you hear scientists say that it's not perfect, but it, it's better than anything else, and it's it's good enough that it's going to do a good job. Uh, and just quickly to cover our last two points, the idea that it doesn't break down over time. Scientists, again, have studied this. Um, mammals metabolize it, so if it's not a lethal dose for a mammal, it will be broken down. It doesn't stay as 1080 inside the animal. Plants as well, when they absorb it, it gets changed into other chemicals. And if it gets absorbed by the soil, bacteria break it down. So pretty much wherever 1080 is when it's been dropped, it will break down fairly quickly, quicker if it's wet and warm. And so drops tend to happen when it's wet and warm, just to make sure that that breakdown into less dangerous chemicals happens as quickly as possible. Mm, okay. Uh, one, one of the places I think we can direct people that, um, that a source of your uh, research here is that Forest and Bird website, isn't it, where there's some frequently asked questions about 1080, uh, as well as osprey.co.nz, uh, how 1080 yeah. breaks the soil down. So there is some further reading there for people if they're interested. Absolutely. Just, just a Google search. I mean, being Google and being the internet, there's going to be information on both sides. But if you if you choose wisely and if you look for organizations and groups that have respectability, um, that have scientists that are actually doing the work rather than just fear mongering, you should find some good quality information. And just lastly, who's Alex Jones and why is he losing the plot? <laughs> so Alex Jones, he, he's a favorite for skeptics. Uh, he runs a website called InfoWars, pushes a whole bunch of nonsense, all sorts of conspiracy theories that the government's planning to make FEMA camps in the US and uh, arrest everybody and put them into these camps. Um, that pretty much everything that happens that's bad in the state is a conspiracy. It's made up. The government is using false flag operations in order to control the population. Oh, and the, the mass, a, mass shootings all made up. They're all actors. Is that this bloke? Is that this, yeah, this fella? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. he's a real idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and is it, he's taken something, he's got a, a bone to pick with Marco Rubio. Yeah. So there was a really weird video that came out the other day with him. Um, at a an interview, I, I guess he was there as a journalist rather than as a somebody to be interviewed at the time. Marco Rubio was being asked about something, and and Alex Jones decided it was okay just to interrupt and and just kind of rant and rave. So I think we've got the audio of that. Marco Rubio, the snake, <laughs> <laughs> little frat boy here. All right, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who are you? Man? Yeah, who is sure. This guy? I swear to God, yeah, I don't you know better who hope you get deplatforming. Tens of millions of views. Infowars. Bigger than Rush Limbaugh. He knows who Infowars well, is. He's playing this joke over here. That's why and the deplatforming didn't work. But, but, yeah, but here, here's, here's the question. Here's a question. Hey, don't touch me again, man. I'm asking you not to touch me. Well, sure. I'm just bad at you nicely. I know, but I don't want to be. I don't know. Oh, you want me to get arrested? Who you are. It's not just going to take my First arrested, Amendment. Man. You're it's not just enough to take my First Amendment. Oh, oh, he'll beat me up. I didn't say that. I know I am, but he's so mad.
You're not going to silence me. You're not going to silence America. Well, but, but, there are, but there are people. You are, like, you are literally like a little gangster thug. There are, there are people in this country. Rubio just threatened to physically uh, take care of me. There are people who Look at feel that they're being silenced. They feel like he tells they're you China's by, the problem, by, which it is, but they're taking our like free speech right Wow. He's lost the plot. He's lost the plot, this bloke. He's having a real crack. He is. I, I, I think part of what's going on basically is that um, recently, because of a, a lawsuit that he's involved in, he started losing his social media account. So he's been pushing one of his many conspiracy theories is the idea that Sandy Hook, where uh, a lot of children were unfortunately killed by a, a gunman, is a conspiracy. It is, it is fake. The parents are lying, but no children died. And some of the parents are so up in arms about this that they're suing Alex Jones for defamation. And because of this lawsuit and because of just how raw it is and just how much he seems not to care about the parents, uh, in recent weeks he's been blocked from Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and he's just recently lost his Twitter account as well. Mm. And I, I think he's worried that he's losing his reach. He's losing his ability to to get out his message out to people. So it looks like just barging his way in front of a camera and um, and hassling a politician seems to be an alternative way of him getting he's, his media. He's time. losing his marbles as well. Mark Honeychurch with Skeptical Thoughts. Thank you. We'll talk again next week. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. We go to the book desk now and introducing Rachel Buchanan, who has just released a book called Ko Taranaki Te Maunga. Hi Rachel, how are you? I'm good. Nice to speak with you, Ryan, and hello, listeners. It's a privilege to be on air. Thank you for coming on. This is a book essentially about Parihaka. Now, Parihaka was the scene of well, an atrocity back in 1881. Set the scene for us and tell us the story what happened back then for those that don't know it so well. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, 1881 doesn't make sense until you, you go back to 1860. So, um, you know, New Zealand was uh, was being colonised and Taranaki was one of the places that um, really there was a lot of resistance. So the first war in Taranaki started in 1860 at Waitara and that was over a disputed sale of land. So there was that was about two or three years of fighting and then um, there was a lull. Then there was another war in 1868 led by um, Titoku Waru. So he was a... Uh, South Taranaki outstanding military leader, and uh, he actually beat you know the British troops. He was uh, you know a brilliant tactician, um, and then he was defeated. And basically, what happened was that um, my relatives up in Taranaki, everyone was very very outnumbered and had become refugees many times over Ryan because um, mm. the British troops and then the uh, local militia did a scorched earth kind of. Um, had a scorched earth policy, which meant they would go along and burn everyone's homes and ruin the crops. So people were starving, and this place called Pariaka was set up by Tafiti and Tohu. So they were men that were um, had been baptised um, baptised in the Lutheran Church, but were also very schooled in the old ways. So they were spiritual leaders, and Pariaka became this refuge for not just people from Taranaki um, iwi, but from all around the, um, the, the island. Yes. Uh, and the thing that made Pariaka special was that um, it was against fighting, so non-violent resistance as a strategic move. And really there'd been uh, 
1881, the event that is reasonably well known on the 5th of November, uh, 1,500 troops, uh, soldiers really, invaded um, the PAR and um, it, they were met with people just sitting down, unarmed people. Uh, you know, women had baked bread to welcome the troops and then uh, the leaders were arrested. Most people were um, expelled from Pariaka and told to go back to their villages, but the little problem was that most of those places had been destroyed and then the place was ransacked. So that's that's what people sort of know about Pariaka. But, um, you know, before that invasion in 1881, there'd been... Um, two years of really significant civil disobedience. So I think New Zealand's biggest sort of civil rights movement was in Taranaki. Of course, I'd say mm. that because that's where I'm from. But mm. um, it began with um, men from men and boys from Pariaka going out to land that was being occupied by white settlers and starting to plough that land. And, and really that ploughing was a really strategic move. We're ploughing up the belly of the government. We're making a claim and saying this is actually our land. And mm. uh, Dozens and dozens, hundreds of those men were arrested and many of them were sent to jails in the South Island. So that's a sort of, that, that's a really short answer, Ryan, um, around yes. what happened there. And, and you know, then, then the 20th century happened. So Pariaka is still, people kept living there, I mean, um, and things kept occurring. So have I answered the question? Yeah, abs- absolutely, yeah. absolutely, to set the scene on Parihaka. The book is called Ko Taranaki Te Manga. Now, now that's something that you'd say in terms of a mihi-mihi or an introduction. Mm. Uh, ko, ra- mm. ko Ryan Taku Ingoa, Ko Auraki Te Manga, mm. Takitimu Te Waka. Uh, so does that describe this book as being a, a bit of a personal story for you as well as it being about the event? What's the narrative of this particular book? How does it flow? Yeah, so um, that's a really great question. So, yeah, I called it, um, I mean, the book is not just about Pariaka, it's about Taranaki, really, and it's a very personal story. I I decided I would take on the book and return to the subject of Pariaka, which I'd done a PhD uh, about in the early 2000s. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer last year, and it was very, very aggressive, and he died uh, in October last year, and I really, it was just, uh, many of your listeners will have lost a parent or a loved one, and it's just... Mm. It was a really horrendous time, and I had this bizarre feeling when I first learned that Dad was, in fact, you know, there was nothing that could be done, and he was going to die. I, I had this strange sensation that uh, when he died, I would somehow cease to exist. I know that sounds weird, and I started thinking, what, what can I do? How can I respond to this monumental event? And mm. I've been working in Melbourne in a pretty stressful job working with an archive, and I decided that I would attempt to return to my roots or really explore who dad had been and who I was um, and write this book. So it's a very, right. it's not a conventional history book at all. It's a very much a personal story that, that begins really with, um, you know, dad, dad being unwell and then me thinking about what, what I could do, how I could approach our whanau's history. And the key figure in the book really became um, Tari Warahi, Charles Wallace, who was dad's great-grandfather and the thing that I unearthed when I was working on this book, Ryan, was that we knew um, we knew a bit. Of, I knew a bit about Charles, um, but I hadn't realised how skillful he was as an interpreter. So he, he mm. what I found out was that um, Charles Tari was actually at Pariaka and was the interpreter between Tefiti Oromamai and um, Crombie Brown, who was a who became quite a notorious journalist working for the Littleton Times. And Crombie Brown's reports have been primary source sort of evidence for the invasion and all of that. So really I started thinking about what did it mean, who was Charles, how did he operate, what was he doing, 
and what did it mean for me now that that was my tūpuna. So oh, wow. That, that's, yeah, a, yeah, so. That, that's a really close connection. So your great-grandfather essentially was the translator to uh, what's the, the documentation that we look back on today as the recount or account of what happened. So, yeah, that's right. Dad's great-grandfather. So um, Charles Wallace, Tari Wadahi, was born at Te Pa. So I know lots, lots of your listeners will be in Auckland, but um, this is a Wellington place. So if you've been to Te Papa, Te Pa, that's Te Pa. Um, and the mm. pa was really destroyed by the extension of Taranaki Street. So Charles was born there 1848, and he was raised, he was bilingual from birth. And um, those skills meant that that's how he made his living. So the key, Charles was an interpreter in quite a few of the court cases for the men that were, the ploughmen that were uh, arrested. Yep. And it's really interesting hearing the words of those ploughmen and then the words of Tefiti and thinking it's not just... Um, you know, those leaders or those men speaking to me, it's my tūpuna speaking to me. I mean, you know, the, it, back then, the mid late 19th century, um, this was a Māori world. I mean, Taranaki was staunchly non-European. I mean, it was Māori would have been the language of everyday life. So mm. Charles had enough skill across both those worlds to be able to translate those words, you know. And I, I felt, um, given that my career has been as a journalist and a writer... Um, I felt a strong connection to him, really, uh, yeah, really strong connection. So I think these people that, um, Ryan, were intermediaries, you know, working in between are really important people to think about. Mm. You know, I'd always associated Tefiti with Parihaka. I think that's how I was taught at school. Until I'd read the first uh, chapter of your book, I didn't know who Tohu Kakahi was. Was he sort of mm. a secondary figure, or was Tefiti more famous because he led the negotiations, or if you call them that? Or... Oh, yeah, no, so I better just quick, I don't want any of my relatives telling me off, no, they were both equal, but yes. in different, operated in different spheres. So right. my understanding, and I'm really not an expert on those two men and their personalities, but would be that um, Tohu was more of the spiritual the strong, silent, staunch type, and, yes. and Tefiti was the front man. So they both, that's my understanding. I mean, and then at the par itself, um, you know, after 1881, then, then people did sort of begin to identify more strongly with one man or the other. So I'd see that they're two sides of the same coin, but you can't think about one without the other. And, you know, lot, the ploughmen that, um, the corridor that I was reading, they were talking about um, Tohu is your lord, he is the master of all. So, you know, I mean, um, it depended on who you were, who you claim kind of thing. Yeah. There's an excellent quote in, I think it was your PhD in 2001, and mm. you said that Parihaka moves into view and disappears mm. a bit like the mountain itself. Can you elaborate mm. on that, what you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's still persistently, last year there was the big reconciliation ceremony at um, Parihaka and, uh, you know, Chris Finlayson went there and apologised and that was, you know, very widely covered and very significant event. But some of the commentary around that, Ryan, was sort of saying, oh, you know, at last it can be remembered and it's been forgotten. And that's really not true. I mean, I think the mountain is a good metaphor. If you've been to Taranaki, you know, sometimes they, there's that saying, the mountain doesn't, that he doesn't show his face to strangers. Well, you know, often you can go there and the mountain will be hidden for days and days. And then suddenly the cloud parts and there he is just like, huge. So Pariaka are the same. So I think 
you know, you've got all these periods, say, the 19, 1927, when there was a commission of inquiry into confiscated land, um, Pariaka was a big part of um, what, what claimants were talking about. Then you have 1954 and Dick Scott, um, you know, a young bloke who was a communist, goes to Taranaki. He's read about Pariaka in a 19th century libel case and sort of thinks, well, I'll rock up and see, does this place still exist? And it did you know, ruins. Mm. So mm. this is a this is a war zone, everything falling down and he writes his book and it reached a small but really influential audience. I mean that first book, nineteen fifty four, was also published in, in Russia, translated into Russian because it was um seen as a sort of communist manifesto. I mean that's how Dick Scott portrayed it. Then you have the nineteen seventies and that that's interesting again because um people at Pariaka, including one of my dad's good friends, um, Tony Ruikiri, so he's a doctor, uh Tony was asked by old people at Pariaka to find Dick Scott and get him to come back and put out another version of his book. Mm. So that's, that became Ask That Mountain, which um, many, many of your listeners will have seen at least. It's got the very beautiful cover by Michael Smither with the um, stylized mountain and the three Rokura. Uh, so in the 70s, there was a massive amount of interest in Pariaka. And I, I talk in the book about... Um, Notes that I found, a, a museum director had made these field notes about what was going on in 1973. Mm. And, you know, it's like artists were tripping over themselves. You had filmmakers there, you had carvers there, you had the aunties reviving Poi and Waiata, you had school kids. It was just all on. Mm. And then, so there's these cycles. So then all of that effort happened falling away and then you have the Waitangi Tribunal hearing so that's the early 1990s so it's not I feel Ryan like it's there's sort of I don't I don't really know what's the language to describe that process it's a sense that Pariaka just keeps working you know it's it's such a uh, potent yep. place yep. yeah it comes and goes place. it's it always goes. it's always going to be an example I guess another interesting point is the apology of it versus the whakama or the shame of it for the government. Perhaps that's one reason why they like to come and go and then, and in, you know, in, in European sense of the term, um, well, we've said sorry, let's make it all better and move on. Whereas in Te Ao Māori, yes, there's forgiveness, but it's never forgotten uh, and it's always yeah. there. And there's that apology versus the shame of it all that, you know, there's, there's got to be a balance there in how we look back on it. Yeah, no, I really like the points you're making. And it's interesting that, that you've raised um, Whakama because I guess the genesis of this particular book is an essay I wrote in, uh, was published in 2012 in Te Kōrero, which is the Journal of the Māori Historians Association. And that, that essay was looking, um, started with a waiata called um, Te Whakama, actually, and and the translation of that waiata in the um, deed of settlement between Ngāti Mutuna and the Crown talks says that that song is about the shame that um, Pākehā or Tauiwi should feel for what they did in the old days, and that the shame is so big you could never get over it. But what I learned after speaking with knowledgeable people, Ryan, was that really the deeper meaning of that song is about the shame we, we felt, Taranaki people, the terrible whakamā that we felt because of loss of language, because of the complete loss of land, because of all those things that happened. So I wanted to... A, a deeper story, I think, is shifting that focus away from what the Crown is or isn't doing to what, what my relatives, what they, what we've done to try and overcome this sense of whakama, you know, this mm. sense of, like, who are we? It's different. Taranaki is not Ngāti Pirau. You know, you have 
I've got a neighbour who's a Ngāti Prime man, and he was sitting at the front of my house in Melbourne yesterday, and um, he speaks fluent Māori. He was raised in the old way, you know, on his land. Mm. Now, that's not such a common occurrence in Taranaki, and certainly it's a very non-existent uh, occurrence for uh, any Māori person, Te Atiawa Taranaki, in Wellington. You mm. know, like Charles Wallace, um, Koro Charles, well, he couldn't... Um, stay on his um, papakainga because it was destroyed by a road. Uh, I mean, tough luck. You know, there was no way, who was he going to mihi to? No one. And, you know, my great-grandmother, she, they ended up in Johnsonville. So that was the story. I mean, there's, I know that there'll be similar stories for, um, for people in Auckland. But in Wellington, yeah, a lot of things were lost. And, and you know, one of the things in my book is talk, thinking about my dad's life and my grandmother's and thinking how how hard they had to work really to maintain or to regain some of their, the knowledge that was taken with um, this events in Taranaki. So mm. beating that shame, you know, like not, so I feel with this book being published, um, that's it, I've done, I've done this mahi, like I've, I've beaten that shame, that sense of like, you know, I'm a Māori person, but I'm white-skinned. My pronunciation is shocking, apologies to listeners, but so what? Am I going to keep being pushed down because of that? No. So, you know, I saw this, um, got this amazing photo on WhatsApp today. So it's been a really cool week for our whānau because my youngest, I'm the oldest of eight, and uh, my youngest brother Joseph just had his first baby with his wife, Marama. And it was this really cool photo, um, Brian, of the little baby, she doesn't have a name yet, with my book um, mm. on her chest, Kotaramaki oh. Tumaunga. So it's like, there is her mihi, I've done it. I've given her, like, she comes from all different Wakapapa lines, lucky kid. But, um, you know, it's like... I looked at that and I thought that is the deepest sense of satisfaction for me as a writer. I have, mm. I've, given, I've given my children and this little girl, I've given them something about themselves, you know? And if it speaks to other people, that's really good as well. So, um, yeah. The author is Rachel Buchanan, who we're speaking with now. The book called Taranaki Te Maunga. Rachel, this has obviously been a journey to get to this point, and, and that's a great story. That's That shivers up the spine stuff in terms of, of what's happening with that baby and your whanau. You're right, because mm. Māori stories were always passed down orally uh, through the ages, and you know to document stuff and know that in 100 or 200 years' time, your account is there word for word. That's going to be really special for your whanau going down the line, which mm. sort of leads me to my next question. Uh, you're not just an author, you're a curator, you're currently living in, in Melbourne, um, mm. you, you've been involved in, in several uh, essays and, and journals in the past. Mm. What's next on the journey for you? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a really good question, Ryan, and I'm just, um, I'm just really not sure what the answer to that is. I mean, um, every, time, every time I return to Taranaki in my work, it stirs up more things, you know, like in more ideas. Um, but, you know, living in Oz, um, you know, Australians in general aren't as interested in New Zealand as they could be, even though there's so many New Zealanders here and so many Māori people here. So I suppose I'm just going to see, Ryan, what, what happens with this book? What happens um, for me? I mean, I, I've given a poor answer. The answer is I just don't know. <laughs> I, feel like I've done, I feel like I've just given everything to this book. Like, it's just everything. I've just got nothing left. I've put it all out there and it's not, you know, if readers are expecting a, a book that says this is what happened and this is what it means, they'll be disappointed because in a way, ever since I started, you know, I'd started doing my PhD in history and I was really eager to learn and I was really shocked by 
this voice, this historian's voice, the knowing voice that just would make these statements and say, and that was how it was. And the more mm. I know, the less I know sort of thing. And so I'm like, well, I'm really, really middle-aged now, and I still feel <laughs> like I'm surprised. I'm like, okay, what is the answer here? Like, if you think about Pariaka, what is that physical place? Now, I absolutely can't speak for anyone living there. Those people have their own, that's, that's their universe. But I was thinking, you know, if you live there, it's like your listeners thinking, imagine if your house, your home was the Auckland War Memorial or the Wellington War Memorial. That's where you lived, right? Mm. And you lived there and you were expected to not only, so people can turn up whenever they want and you've got to talk to them about what happened at the War Memorial, what, what happened. You also have to feed them. You have to, and, and you're not paid. I mean, at Pariaka, mm. it's, you know what, it, on a marae, those people, the amount of work that Māori people do for nothing, mm. aroha, but how long can that go on? So I suppose I've been thinking, what would that really be like? If your home was actually a war memorial, what would it be like? I don't know. Fascinating. Hard. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's In New Zealand, you may not be aware being in Australia, it's the end of Māori Language Week this week. Uh, I've seen on Twitter, yes. Yes. Mm. So I thought it might be nice to put you on the spot Mm. and just get you to close for the karakia. Oh, don't put me on the oh, spot, but, Ryan, you, no. but what about Whakatakete Hoki Te Uru? You started writing it oh, in, your, in chapter yeah. one. You know that one, don't you? I do, yeah. Okay, okay. you've got to say it with me because I'm totally on the spot now. Okay. Ki te uru, whakatake te hau, ki te taonga, kia mā, kina kina kiuta, kia mā, tara tara ki tai, kia 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 uh, yeah. It is super mean, but I am all of you people out there who are speaking <laughs> today. Keep up the good work. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Weekend Variety Wireless. The latest in news and sport is coming up very shortly from News Hub. It's your chance to be involved in the show tonight after midnight. The overnighter, Tony Amos, along to keep you company into the wee small Hours. The weekend variety wireless continues, though. After the news, it's a letter from America, and I can see the steam coming out of his ears already. It's John Dibvig, the entertainer, as we know. He's so passionate about US issues, and he's not a Trump fan. He will be in after 10 o'clock to rant and to rave. Stick around. For now, though, the latest in news and sport from News Hub.